Thank you so much, Ed, for bringing us to this place. Have you ever tried to win an argument by telling somebody up front that you're a fool? Um, it's an interesting tactic, is it not? In the uh, Jewish worship calendar, each week there's an assigned Torah portion, a portion of scripture that is assigned each week that you read, pray about, uh, some synagogues have lessons that go with them, and then usually when you get to Sabbath, the sermon will be centered on it, or the homily or the devotion will be. Last week, the Torah portion included the manna in the wilderness narrative. When Israel first came out of Egypt and brought into the wilderness, they needed food. And who fed them? God did. Manna fell each morning for them to be able to gather and to prepare every morning except for Sabbath. I listened to a podcast hosted by a young rabbi and Talmudic scholar that explores these ancient texts for our modern times. As a matter of fact, that's the tagline of the podcast. Her co-host is a favorite actor of mine who's Jewish and brings his perspective as a modern American Jew, somebody born and raised and lived out their faith, their entire Jewish faith uh, in America. They often have guests, and last week, because of the manna story and, and the idea of being fed, or the idea of the first challenge that Israel faced when they came out of Egypt is to be food challenged, is to be hungry. They invited Abby Liebman, president and CEO of Mazon. Mazon is an organization dedicated to ending hunger in our country, and in the world eventually, using a Jewish biblical approach. In fact, that's what they say their motto is. We wanna end hunger, and this is the Jewish approach to ending hunger. And in my mind, when I hear that, I hear this is a biblical approach of ending hunger. The host was commenting on the manna story and God's commands concerning the harvest and quoted several ancient rabbis and one of who said that the reason that the manna fell uh, just for each day, in other words, each day the manna fell and you had to go out and get it, that the reason for doing so, this ancient rabbi says, is that it was for Israel to learn that they were completely dependent on who? On God. Now, that hit my ears uh, not unusual at all. Does it hit unusual to you? Does it offend? Does it, no, because we have a picture of God and for us, the manna is a picture of God's mercy that he had on Israel. They're in a hostile place that has no food and has no water. In this journey from Egypt across one of the world's most inhospitable deserts to the Holy Land. So I agreed with this assessment of this ancient rabbi, not knowing exactly who he was, because I have that lens to look through at God. Or I have a set of earphones that help me to hear mercy in that story. Dr. Liebman did not, though. She viewed this scene not through the same lens. She viewed this scene through the lens of her work that she's dedicated her life to, and that is ending hunger. 
She was moved to do this work because what she sees poverty and hunger do to human beings, human beings, by the way, who are all created in whose image, she sees hunger stripping them of their dignity, which it does. Homelessness, hunger, poverty, it demeans humanity. She sees the story very differently. She sees the story that the manna was a constant reminder that somebody else was in control. See, she would like to uh, uh, create resources and be able to um, assist resources that are already in place to be able to end hunger by making people not dependent on somebody else. She sees it through a completely different lens. She saw Israel being humiliated by the same act. See, we all have lenses, don't we? That we come to scripture with. We all have earphones that filter. It hits our ears and our hearts differently and it all depends on our lives and the tons of situations of where we happen to be going through. Have, have you ever had a completely different interpretation of scripture, say 10 years ago, when you were at a different place in life? And you look back and you say, that, 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 that meaning just doesn't hit me like this anymore. It hits me like this. Well, I praise God that it isn't completely dependent upon that, but God understands that and realizes it. I wish it were completely dependent on a brand new revelation that I have of him. Because every day he reveals himself to us more. But that revelation also has to do where I'm at, where you're at at our time in life, where we are. We have these lenses. The longest part of our Ecclesiastes portion last week, for lack of better term and, and, and just to get right down to it so I can be able to move on and introduce us to this week's, was about wealth and greed, was it not? It also was, was Solomon beginning to struggle with the idea of who he was and how he approached God beforehand. I love, I love that we discovered the vows part, to be able to be in the presence of God. But Solomon said, for me, being in the presence, I see it differently. And remember that Solomon is at a point in his life. He's at a, a place to where he views what he's done, and he views his relationship with God differently. I tried to adjust our lenses before reading them because if we just read these passages, it seems that we're being lectured about being greedy by one of the most greedy, self-indulgent people that ever lived. And I noticed that as I came to the end of talking about the greediness and wealth and all of those things and trying to bring it around to us, our mood became rather subdued. Especially when I mentioned our own system and capitalism and all of those things. By the way, thank you very much for not summing the whole uh, 47 minutes down to just that one comment about it. But it isn't easy when we're being convicted on whether or not our wealth equals greed or greed equals wealth or what to do with that wealth and what is done. I mention it today because he's not done with this theme. 
Chapter six is almost a conclusion to what he began this conversation that we began in the middle of chapter five last week. Last week, remember, it wasn't wealth being the most grievous of evils. How many here, did you walk away saying, uh, thinking that Solomon was saying that wealthy was evil? No, he did not. He said the most grievous of evils was wealth, but not being able to enjoy it. And one of the reasons why wealthy people have a hard time enjoying it, not, not, not wealthy people, excuse me, why greedy people have a hard time enjoying their wealth is because they're concerned with making more what? With more wealth. It's only one of the reasons, by the way. I hope to get into another reason today. But it's an insatiable need, greed is. And the way that he said it last week, he said, the lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This also is what? Is vanity, a breath. This is, this is uh, futility of all futilities, all the ways to be able to translate the way that he keeps coming back to what it's like living under the sun. They're never satisfied. He said in last week that they can't sleep, they can't eat, they can't enjoy their food that they eat. He calls it a grievous ill, he said. This is also a grievous ill, just as they came, so shall they go. And what to gain do they have from toiling in the what? From toiling in the wind. Again, it's not wealth. He pointed out, we'll move on from five here. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to what? To enjoy them and to accept their lot, to find enjoyment in their toil. This is the gift from God. What lens do we hear these verses from? What is it that the Kohelet, the, the assembler of sayings, the teacher is getting to us today? He picks up this grievous ill theme that he did back in five, uh, verse 16. He picks it up and he begins chapter six this way. There is an evil, it's the same word as that grievous ill back in verse 16, that I have seen under the sun, and it lies very what? Very heavy on humankind. This, this word heavy also means great and many. It's an abundance. It's, 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 a, it's a heaviness. And this becomes a theme in this entire chapter because he uses derivatives of this heaviness and this many uh, 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 vexations and everything. He uses it five times in the, in, in the next few verses or derivatives of it. It's a grievous ill. And he says this ill, to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing. So they have what? They have no need. They have no lack. They have everything. Everything that they desire. By the way, not just what God says that, that is necessary for you, whatever. It's whatever they desire. Yet God does not enable them to enjoy these things, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, a grievous ill. Again, pointed out, wealth does not mean it's a grievous ill. Wealth does not equal grievous ill. What equals grievous ill is what's done with that wealth. When does having wealth turn into greed. It's interesting he says someone else enjoys them. 
We talked about this last week. He said last week that, that, um, that uh, the more that somebody makes, the more consumers consume them and he can't keep up with the production. So he just keeps trying to produce more and become more wealthy and produce more in order for other people to enjoy them, yet he can't enjoy it. Why? Because he's working so hard to meet the demand. There's another uh, instance to this too, is that it says that a stranger, actually it also, that you could translate that as foreigner. A foreigner enjoys them all. See, he used to be the king of Israel. Can you imagine what he brings to the table in a discussion like this? The economic alliances and entanglements that he's made with other nations. How to tax businesses and landowners and all of that. He brings all of this to the table. There's a, there's a story that Hiram, the king of um, uh, in Damascus, in Lebanon, he, he provided all the wood for Solomon's palace and also for the temple, the cedar, uh, the, the forests were, were famous for it. And Hiram had an alliance with his father. He had one with David. So Hiram was happy to deal with Solomon and give him all the cedar that they wanted. And Solomon uh, made a deal with him. He made this, this deal with him. After the temple was built, Solomon wanted to give him a gift. And the gift he gave him was 12 cities up in the Golan, up in the northern place. Hiram went to see them and he didn't like them. He said, you know those cities that you gave me, they're pretty pathetic. And Solomon had to say, okay, okay, I'll, uh, I'll take care of that. Alliances. Other people taking or enjoying what you had to do. It's interesting what the king brings to the table in a discussion like this, Right? Someone else enjoys them. But then it turns very bleak and very heavy, this word heavy on how really this is. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. First of all, he might not even enjoy his own burial. If he loses all of his money in a bad investment, like he said before, or it's all taken from him, or, or this, this uh, road to perdition truly ends in perdition, he may not even have enough money left for his family to bury him. He said, and isn't that the ultimate of under the sun, toiling and being vexed under the sun, isn't it? Is that, that it, you know, you, you, you toil and toil and toil, and in the end, you don't even have enough money to be buried. But he likens it also to saying this, that if this is the case, then he'd have been better off if his mother had what? Miscarried him. Because like I said, it gets darker. Why? Because a miscarriage comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. The miscarried infant never comes to light and has to toil what? Under the sun. And they were treated this way too. They didn't know what to do in ancient days with a, a, a miscarriage. They were buried, but they weren't put in graves 
because they never came to light. But Solomon said, that is more fortunate than the man who had a hundred children and never ever could satisfy his needs. Moreover, it's not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. He said, what's fortunate about the miscarriage is that they find what? They find rest. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go in one place. You're gonna end up in the same place. He says to the, to the insatiable greed, he says to them, wouldn't you rather just rest? It will get you where? It will get you nowhere under the sun. Death awaits everyone, the sameness, the same place. There is no satisfaction. And he concludes by saying, all human toil is for the mouth, yet the appetite is not satisfied. Everything we do, we, we do to, to fulfill what we need, but our appetite is never satisfied. And there's no advantage to it. He says this drive, there's absolutely no advantage to it. One advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing to walk before the living? Wisdom and wealth were supposed to make a difference. By the way, in the kingdom under the sun, the kingdom of this world, sun, S-U-N, it does make a difference, doesn't it? How much difference does it make, wisdom and wealth? It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference here. But the kingdom under the sun, kingdom of heaven, S-O-N, where does wealth and wisdom get you? We began by listening to the apostle describe wisdom and wealth versus poverty and foolishness. And Paul said, between the two, I'd rather be a what? I'd rather be a fool. And I'd rather be homeless. And I'd rather be a dreg of society. Why? Because I live under the sun. S-O-N. The Kohelet suggests that the poor man's competence in dealing with others does him no more good than the wisdom of the wise does. It does no good. Both end up where? Both end up in the same place. For who can possibly know what is best for a man to do in life, the few days of his fleeting life, for who can tell him what the future holds for him under the sun? It's interesting is that he comes to us as a writer of wisdom, and he is. He's the wisest man that ever lived. But notice where his wisdom takes us. His wisdom says, he, I have wisdom, but I don't claim that it can do anything for us here. It's gotten me nowhere. I like how one uh, uh, rabbi put it this way. He says, he's a wisdom writer who constantly questions the value of wisdom. He knows that a human life is likely to be bleak, that it's intrinsically unpredictable, it may end badly, and will surely be blotted out by death. Yeah, that's for sure, that's coming. But his wisdom is to register this perception, but apart from his occasional exhortations to enjoy, he does not presume to know what is good for man. 
unlike purveyors of mainline wisdom. What he means is, is that if you and I or somebody else with a different perspective had the wisdom of Solomon, what would we be doing right now? We'd be writing books telling you we know what's best for you. We'd all have a book to sell, wouldn't we? And Solomon says, I'm the Kohelet. I'm the writer of wisdom. And I don't presume to know what's good in life or not. And I especially don't know to presume what's good for you. He can only come to it with what perspective? His own. He comes to it with his own perspective. What has his wisdom done for him? Writing all these years after his life. What has it done for him? He said, it's got me chasing the wind. I'm part of that utter futility. It got me where? Nowhere. I know this, how this must sound and what it does to our hearts. When we hear these things, we begin to sit and we begin to ponder our own charity, our wealth, the possibility of greed. Have I done enough? Have I not done enough? Um, where's the line, Pastor Greg? Show me where the line is between wealth and greediness, between generosity and greed. Please help us here. We're floundering. The offering has already gone by. Or maybe on the other end of the perspective that I know that there are people sitting here because I've sat here during offering thinking the same thing, saying, God, if I could just have just a little more. There, I went on a mantra for about a year once and said, you know what? I could solve every one of my financial problems if I could just get one more paycheck. Not one paycheck per month, just give me one month where I would get one more and I'd catch up. I used to pray for that. Do you know how many times God answered that prayer? None. So we're all here listening to these words about this. So before you take these words home today, I just wanna give you possibly some adjustment to your lenses or your headphones on how you hear these verses. Number one, remember this. When you read Ecclesiastes 6, and by the way, he's gonna continue the theme in 7. When you read Ecclesiastes 5 and we talk about wealth and poverty and, and, and hunger and, and uh, abundance and greed and all of that, remember who's writing this. Always remember this. This is not a self-righteous dogmatist spouting empty moralism. This is not a, 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 a pastor who lives off the prosperity gospel trying to get your money. This is the teacher who was the king. He's describing himself. Have you gotten that? I've been trying to get that across to you ever since we started this. He's describing himself. I'm telling you what happened to me. He's not talking about some other greedy king somewhere else. He's at the end of his life and he's looking back. He doesn't not like what he sees and he's decided that he is gonna lay it all out there. 
Does he know inherently what confession can do? I think so, I really do. I understand that Jesus doesn't come for a thousand years. I understand all of that, but he's decided he's gonna take it to God. He's gonna lay it out there and take it to God. And by the way, as he writes it down and writes down this huge confession of who he was and where he is now, we get to benefit. We get to show what the presence of God can do when somebody tries to come to terms with who they were or who they are, even if your resume looks like his or worse. We get the benefit of what this kind of openness with God can do for us. It's a burden trying to look good before a God who already knows that we're not. So I want help with us adjusting those lenses. Remember that, number one. Number two, I want some help. And in some help in trying to adjust these lenses to read these verses about wealth, I am going to ask an old friend, an old friend of ours. He has been in our lives for years and years. He's probably been one of the most famous subjects of our Sabbath school lessons and debate points and everything else. He's a man that we don't know his name. All we know of him is that the Bible called him the rich young ruler. Matthew shares this story. By the way, it's found in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Someone came to him and said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. There's our old friend. How many times have we talked about this guy in Sabbath school? How many times have we debated over his decision after what he decided to do after Jesus told him what to do, right? I know it's dozens and dozens because every time I've preached on him, every time I've taught about him, I always get at least three or four or five members that come up to me and say, Pastor, are you telling me that in order for me to be saved, I have to what? Sell everything I own. Am I greedy because I'm not willing to sell everything I own? In other words, we approach this rich young ruler the same kind of way that we're trying to listen to Solomon talk to us about greed. And that's not what this is about at all. It hit me just, I don't know, about one o'clock this morning too, is that rich young ruler, who could this be? This could be Solomon when he was young. Rich young ruler, would that be a way to describe Solomon at one time in his life? Sure it would. I wish this rich young ruler could have listened to Solomon before he came to Jesus to ask him this question. Notice Jesus' point. Why do you ask me about what is what? There's only one who's good. That's interesting. He comes to Jesus and he says, tell me what must I do? Give me the list. I'm good at it. You give me a list, tell me what to do. I can do it. I know I can. I'm good at it. And the very first thing that Jesus says is, why do you come to me about what is good? There's only one that's good. Why aren't you going to the one who is good? Why aren't you going to the Father? You want me to give you a list? Your relationship is with the list, not with the Father. Why don't you go to him? Have a relationship with him. 
The ruler's saying, no, I keep the commandments. That's much more easy. That's much more comfortable for me. That's where I like coming. Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, which ones? Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and also love your neighbor as what? As yourself. Do those things. Notice the commandments, they're all from that other table. Remember, the, the commandments come in two tablets or two tables. The one is under the love God one, right? How, how you love God and what not to do. Fourth commandment, by the way, being the hinge pin between loving God and loving neighbor. It's the connection between heaven and earth. Sabbath is worship of God, but, but it's where? It's here. So it's the beginning of that. The rest of all those commandments on the other side are how to love your neighbor as yourself. It all has to do with how you treat other people. But notice he left one out. Which one did he leave out? The only one that has to do with the heart. He said, don't murder, don't lie, don't dishonor, right? But he left out, don't what? Covet. See, because the rich young ruler doesn't want to deal with the heart. He doesn't want to deal with relationship. So then he throws one in that's not even in the commandments. Love. You see where Jesus took him? You ask me what to do or what not to do in order to get you into the kingdom. What you're lacking is what? What you're lacking is love. You're not lacking obedience. Jesus never questioned his obedience. Guy tells him I've kept him perfectly to this day. Jesus doesn't even question that. Young man said, I've kept him all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be what? Uh-oh. If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. I could, I, could, I could go the next 15 minutes talking about when the word perfect hits in Adventist ears and what kind of lens it, it brings to us. For most of us, it brings trauma, right? But he said, what do I lack? He claims to have kept all these commandments, but he still feels that he's what? See, we forget that. Why did he come to Jesus in the first place if he felt he was already perfect? He feels something. What does he feel? He feels a lack. By the way, he's starting to sound more like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, isn't he? I have a lack. I don't know what to do with this life of sin, this record that I have. He keeps the commandments, but concerning his neighbors, he knows he could still do better. There's something else that I need to do. And until he does, he still lacks at least one more good deed, one more commandment, one more prohibition. And then if I do, I'll inherit eternal life. Jesus said, you don't even know the word inherit, what that means. If you wish to be perfect, Oh, you believe your perfection will get you eternal life? Here's what it looks like then. 
If you're telling me that you need to be perfect, here's what it looks like. Go, what? Sell all your possessions. Give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then what? Then come follow me. Here's what it looks like, he says. Love somebody enough to give them everything that you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, if we're listening with a particular lens, a chill just ran through our spine, didn't it? But what Jesus does is that he begins to bring his nose out of the tablets, out of this walk that he has this, with the list of, that God gave him, and, and he begins to define or redefine neighbor for him. He has a definite idea of who his neighbor is, and it probably doesn't include the poor, right? If you think about it, if he is a rich young ruler, his neighborhood will not include what? Won't include the poor. What neighborhood does he live in? You see? So Jesus is even redefining neighbor for him. The poor probably aren't our neighbors. And then he redefines love and he reveals in him what he lacks. That's what he asked for, right? What is it I lack? You do not love the poor enough to give it all to them, he said. You do not love your neighbor as yourself. You've been convicted. You're not perfect. That's why you came to me. Somebody is telling you that you just don't cut it. I'm telling you what you don't cut is that you are not love. You do not love. You do not experience love. You are selfish. What is this rich young ruler doing with, uh, in comparison to Solomon, what he did with his wisdom being a rich young ruler? He's doing the exact same thing. Solomon's been telling us for three chapters that the problem isn't wealth, the problem is greed. The problem is, is that if I had love in my heart for the poor that I used to oppress, I never would have oppressed them. If I had a relationship with a living, breathing God rather than dead words on a tablet, maybe my wisdom could have made a difference. Here's the moment. Jesus tells him, here's his moment to decide. To decide what? To decide whether or not to give his possessions to the poor? I don't think that's what the decision is. Young man heard this word. He went away grieving for he had what? He had many possessions. He went away grieving. Why? Was he too rich to get into heaven? That's what we think. If we end it here and think that that's what his, the decision he was supposed to make at this point was to decide to give everything that he owned, if we believe that, then what we're saying is he went away grieving because he was too rich to get in. Here's the moment to decide. He went away mad. He went away upset. He went away more burdened than when he came in because his burden was not lifted. He now knows he's got more to do. I got something more to achieve. I've got, I've got to get better. I'll go do better, and then I'll come back and ask him again. And by the way, he can afford to do more because he can afford to. 
Jesus says something that we miss. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it'll be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that what he's saying? Is what he's saying is, is that if you're wealthy, you can't get into the kingdom? See, and that's where the discussion in Sabbath school goes. Then the discussion goes saying, so, so, so pastor, what are you telling me? Everyone comes up to me and says, give me the list. He didn't say that it would be impossible. He said it would be what? But then the analogy that he gives, I don't know. It sounds pretty impossible to me. That looks what? That looks impossible. And yes, I know, I understand. They came up with the story about the needle's eye gate that the camel could actually get through if he took all of his burdens and cares on it. Guess what? It's apocryphal. There was no such thing as a needle's eye gate. If there was, it wasn't built until just before the third century. Jesus was saying, it's the same. For a rich man to get into heaven, it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Not because he's rich. It's impossible because no one can. Are you with me? They wrote the story of the needle's eye gate because they wanted to make the kingdom more attainable to rich people. Because for some reason they think that if I'm rich, I can't get into the kingdom. That's what Jesus taught. I'm always wanting a way to get it done. It's, if it's hard, I want a way to get it done. But if it's impossible, now that's different. See, it's a very telling theology of the day how the disciples answer him too. Do you remember what the disciples' answer to this was? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, then who can be what? Who can be saved? If the rich aren't saved, if the rich aren't already on their way to be saved, then who can be? God already favors them, we can tell. How do we know? They're what? They're rich. It's very telling because probably most of the disciples, except for maybe one or two, and we don't know the story about any of them, they're probably what we would consider today working poor. They were fishermen from the Galilee. John and James' dad may have been rich. It may have actually been a fishing business, but, but Peter and, and Andrew and those, those were fishermen. These are hard, hard-working people that, that just grind out a sustenance. And they've been told all their lives by a church that values wealth, by a church that thinks that God favors by putting uh, wealth in people's pockets, that that's how he favors them. They've been told all their lives that they're not favored by God because they're what? Because they're poor. To me, it's very telling right there of how they feel. If rich can't get in heaven, then who can be what? Who can be saved? The land, the richness, it's flowing with milk and honey. If you were favored by God, you'd be partaking in that. If I'm making it, I must be favored. Prosperity gospel is nothing new. It's always been a confusion of the theology of, of, of this kingdom, the kingdom under the sun, and the prosperity of, of, of the kingdom under the sun. S-U-N versus S-O-N. 
But by this time, Jesus already taught that who is blessed, most blessed in the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Saved has nothing to do with wealth, spiritual or material. It's impossible for anyone to achieve. (laughs) Don't we get that? Except that usually in the Sabbath school lesson, it's cut off after he was sad because he had many possessions. It's cut off there and they don't pick it back up again next week. And the teacher and the pastor are left with the question. So you're telling me I can't get into heaven if I don't go home right now and sell everything. That isn't the point. It wasn't Jesus' point. Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, for people, this is what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Only possible to be saved by who? By God. And in order to be saved, you've got to be lost. The man went away grieving because he doesn't know what to do with the guilt and the lack that he's feeling. Hopefully this rich ruler begins to do when he gets old what Solomon began to do. Jesus told him what it was. He realized he couldn't do it and he went away. See, and there ends usually the Sabbath school lesson. We all tisk, 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 as if it was just a Nike commercial and all he had to do was just do it. Come on, man, go sell everything you have so at least 2,000 years later we could answer that question in Sabbath school. Give me the list. He's not being kept out of the kingdom because he didn't give enough. He's being kept out of the kingdom because at that moment, he decided to walk away from the king. He only has a relationship with God through the law, through the commandments. And the commandments did what the commandments are supposed to do. They've condemned him. He's falling short. He knows it. He feels it. He has a lack he cannot feel, and he just can't do it. By the way, a relationship with God through his law is not just inadequate, it's condemning. He goes away grieving because he's left with the condemnation that brought him to Jesus in the first place. And the only one that can do anything about his condemnation is standing right in front of him and he decided to walk away. Under the sun, we are always going to be inadequate. Sun, S-U-N, condemned. And when we do, our natural instinct is to do something about it. If I'm falling short and I'm not giving enough, you know what I need to do? I need to make more money so my tithe will go up. I can get rich to achieve. I can get rich to be able to give. We strive to do great things, to do great charity. In other words, we're going to walk away and take control. And yes, money can do that here. But of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? That conversation was left the second that the guy asked the question. Jesus isn't talking about money. We're not talking about just being poor in wealth, we're talking about being poor in what? Spirit. Richness extends, of course, to our spirituality and our righteousness. And this young ruler is gonna get back at it. 
I'm gonna get back out, I'm gonna work harder, I'm gonna strive harder. I'm gonna strive harder not to sin. And someday it'll be enough. This rabbi couldn't help me, but someday I'll find another one. You know, and all he had to do was go home and read Ecclesiastes. Because if he read Ecclesiastes, he would see himself in about 50 years. And Solomon would say, my man, I know what you're going through. Go back to that guy and lay it at his feet. For what advantage have the wise over what? Fools. What do the poor have who know how to conduct themselves before the living? It seems foolish to believe against reality, to be weak in order to be strong, to be poor that we may be rich. We're fools for the sake of Christ, not wise, not wise, not wealthy, not self-sufficient. Everything that he described himself being as an apostle was made him completely, absolutely dependent on somebody else. I don't have wisdom, I'm a fool. I don't have wealth, I'm homeless. I don't even have life. Everyone else wishes we were dead. The Kohelet uh, has been down this whole road. He tried to wealth his way through it. He's tried to wisdom his way through it. He even tried to religion his way through it. Remember the section on vows? He even tried to throw up his hands and just indulge his way through it. And he's writing knowing that all has been vanity. He's approaching God with nothing but his sin now. That's all I've got. His record, his past, his selfishness completely intact. He's coming before God and he's saying, I'm staying here because I got nowhere else to go. Remember, we'll get there. That's how he's going to end this whole thing. Fear God, keep his commandments. For in him is the only thing that we've got. So what if this rich ruler 50 years or so earlier would have done that very thing? Just imagine how this would have played out. Rabbi, I know you're right. I just can't do it. I simply can't do it. And Jesus put his hand on his shoulder, looked him right in the eye, and he says, of course you can't. You think you have to do this to become perfect before you can enter? All you have to do to enter is ask me. Why don't you enter? Live in the kingdom with me. Follow me. Free from your condemnation and your grief right now. How can I do that? Lord, I still have this lack. Just believe. That's why it's hard for the rich and the wise. Because the rich and the wise have no need. Jesus came to give us life, the one need that we have. Because we traded life for what? Death. Moses says, today I give before you life and death. Choose what? Choose life. Jesus came to give us life which means that we are in need. But the rich and the wise have no need. They've got enough. And if they don't have enough, they can always do more. They can always think their way through it. They can wealth their way through it. They can wisdom their way through it. 
And by the way, the church thinks that they can theologize their way through it. Doctrine our way through it. Laodicea locks Jesus outside. We won't even approach him like the rich young ruler. We're going to try to talk to him through a locked door and tell him, I am rich and have need of nothing. The imitation of Christ is more than the development of a set of moral habits. By the way, develop your morality. Please, let's all, let's get better. Let's be less greedy. Let's accept whatever wealth we're given. Please, let's get better. Just don't let it condemn you when it falls short. Because it will. We will. But Jesus said, don't walk away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of Martin Luther that when he entered the monastery, he left everything behind except his pious self. But when he met Christ, even that was taken from him. No need. Laodicea teaches that our struggle is the struggle to get into the kingdom. The church should be a people that believe they are in the kingdom. And that the only struggle that we have is trying to remember that, is trying to constantly have faith that we are. That we live in a cloud of witnesses and that the only doubt is whether or not we believe that we already belong because of him. Rich, poor, righteous, unrighteous, all because of Jesus. What a bunch of fools we are. Fools for the sake of Christ. You, me, and the Kohelet. The words of the Kohelet. Thanks for hanging in there with me. (laughs) 